So this week we'll be closing up the main series we've been in since the early fall. The series that we've called, We Believe. In it we've talked through some of the fundamental doctrinal beliefs that, that Calvary as a church prescribes to you. We've, we've looked at the Apostles' Creed, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer, we've looked at the ju- justification and sanctification. We've looked at the sacraments, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Those sacraments also compose two of what we refer to as the three means of grace. And today we'll be looking at the third means of grace, the tangible way that God gives his grace to us, the word, the Bible. Now there are quite a few places in scripture that we could go to talk about the word. We could, we could read or head to 2 Timothy and read about how the word is God-breathed from God, inspired by him, therefore it is truth. We do not get to change what is in the Bible. It is the ultimate guide for conduct, doctrine, and faith. It is God's words to us. It gives us a picture of who he is and what his desires are for the relationship that he wants to have with us. It's, it's fantastic. It's truth. It's infallible. And while all of those things are true, they don't highlight for us why the word, why the Bible is a means of grace. And so we're going to instead turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, and in it there are some fantastic gems. Now, I've preached on this text a few times. I think it's one of my most favorite texts in all of Scripture. It's a text that our church's vision statement comes from. It's the text that fuels our call to mission. I, I love these verses. Again, the text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there. There's a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you if you prefer, but you are also welcome to follow along with the words on the screen. We read the word of the Lord this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. I have a friend. We haven't spoken in a while. But I have a friend who was living on his own, renting an upstairs that had been converted into an apartment. Now, we weren't living near our parents. We, we were in our mid-20s, and with a bunch of friends, we were exploring some of the possibilities that life had for us. But things took a turn for this friend of mine. He, he hit some rough patches in the road. Work was a problem. His, his vehicle broke down, and, and he couldn't afford to fix it. So he had to be more reliant on, on some of us, his, his friends, than his pride wanted him to be. 
His roommate left him for reasons not relating to their relationship at all, but the departure put him in a tough financial situation. Depression began to push its way into his life and then began to run his life in some ways. He stopped taking care of himself like he should. He didn't wash his clothes with regularity. Showers were optional, and and frankly, he began to take on an odor. When we'd ride in the car with him, car with him, we'd, we'd have to open the windows. And, and here's the thing, right? Like, we were his friends. We loved him. We hung out with him outside if we could. But we spent a lot of time with him. And none of us told him about the smell. We'd give weak, apologetic nods to whomever he chose to ride with or to sit next to. But none of us had the guts to tell my friend, again, a friend that I love dearly, that he had an incredibly bad odor. We didn't want to hurt his feelings. We didn't want to push him away from us. We didn't want to embarrass him. We blamed it on the depression and the difficult life circumstances, and we didn't know how to help with those, so we just let him sit in his stench. Do we have an odor that others don't want to tell us about? For most of us, that order would not manifest in the way it did for my friend, but there are other ways that we put people off, aren't there? So I'm not asking about a physical odor that wrinkles our noses as much as I'm asking about a sinful odor that hurts our hearts. Maybe we're too blunt. We say what we think and tell others that people get offended because they can't handle the truth. And what we need to hear are the wise words of the fictional detective Benoit Blanc when he says, It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. Maybe we're passive-aggressive because it's easier to pretend to be nice to their face but destroy them behind their back than it is to weather a confrontation, right? Maybe we're a compulsive liar. Maybe we're a self-justifying kleptomaniac. Maybe we're incredibly self-centered. Maybe we're super greedy. Maybe we're insanely jealous. Maybe we've got idols so big that they're blocking our view of the cross. I don't know what sinful odors that you are putting off that are pushing others away from you. I don't know what your odors are, but the reality is, the truth is, that like my friend, you may not realize them either. We get so accustomed to the odor of our sin that for some sins, we don't even realize how they are affecting the people around us. We don't even realize how offensive they are. We've, we've justified them. We've made excuses for them. We've lived with them for so long that we don't see them as the sin that they are. For some of us, for some of our sins, we don't even recognize that they exist and how deeply they hurt those that we love, how deeply that they hurt God. But make no mistake, though we may be oblivious In the denial of our sinful odors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our God is not. And the sin in our life affects everything it touches. This is true of the sin that we struggle to see as well as the sin that is blatantly obvious to us. The things we do when we fall into temptation, the the things that we do because we think it'll feel good even though we know that it's not okay, even though we are very aware that they are against God's laws. And each of us, each of us is sinful. None of us is without blame. We have all committed and commit sin. And so God calls on us, or he calls us on it. 
God, God knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are not perfect, that we fell from the perfection in which we were created. And he knows us. He knows that, that we are aware of some of our sin and that some of it has gotten so comfortable for us that we don't even realize that we're doing it. And so to shine a light on our need, to make it clear to us that we are sinful, God has given us the law. He's given us the Ten Commandments. He's given us the words, the life, the instruction of Jesus that we may see how he wants us to live. And as we look at this law, as we look at the perfection that Jesus is and the example that he set, the places that we fall short, we may still need some, someone to connect the dots for us on how the law applies to our lives, to point out the sin that is living in our hearts and hurting our brothers and sisters, hurting our God. My friend's odor got so bad that it began to seep into his landlord's house underneath him. It got to the point that the landlord had gave him an eviction notice, giving him 30 days to move out, which meant our friend was going to need a place to live. And so the rubber hit the road for the rest of us. None of us wanted to, that odor in our house. It became clear to us that at that point, probably because we had wanted to avoid the uncomfortable conversation as long as possible, but, but one of us had to tell him about the stench. And I drew the short straw. I'll never forget that day. My friend in the passenger seat, our good mutual friend in the back seat providing moral support, I parked the car with a view of the river. We did some small talk for a few minutes, and then I had to break the news of his condition to my friend. He was crushed. He was embarrassed. He was hurt. He was humiliated. To be told how his depression and the struggles of his life had manifest tangibly in ways that were repugnantly apparent to others was devastating to him. And then to know that his friends had held it from him for so long, hadn't told him about it for so long, he was hurt. He was so hurt. I had to ask for his forgiveness for not telling him sooner. It was a really, really hard conversation but it was such a good conversation. It was a healthy conversation. It was a necessary conversation. There will be times in our lives when it is a brother or sister in Christ that is pointing us to Scripture, pointing us to the truth, to make us aware of our sin. It may be a task that you are given at some point. When that time comes, please be gentle. Please be empathetic. Do it in love and not anger or spite or pride. But may we also know that God does not solely or even mainly rely on us to apply the law to the heart of the sinner. For that is one of the roles the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. The Holy Spirit that God has sent to us, the advocate, the part of the Trinity that is here now working in the hearts of men and women, calling us into relationship with God. And not only calling us into relationship, but shaping us molding us and convicting us. The Holy Spirit is not confused on how to apply the law to our lives. He isn't swayed by the shifting moralities of the, the culture around us. He knows what is right. He knows what is true. And He knows where every, everywhere that we fall short. 
And when we hear the word of God proclaimed, the Holy Spirit convicts us, makes us aware, opens our eyes that we may see and understand the ways that we have fallen short of all that God wants for us. This is the law at work in our lives. It it curbs us. It stops us from doing what our sinful selves want to do. But let us not see the law as something that God has given us to curb our fun. Though Though our fallen selves and broken society may try to paint the guidance of the law as the fun police, I am here today to tell you that that is not the case. God simply wants what is best for us while helping us to avoid harm. It's like when I took my, my little Noah out of the library, and he wanted to walk like a big boy. He didn't want to hold Dad's hand. He didn't want to listen to, to who, to, to, yeah, listen when Dad told him to stop before he crossed the road. And so before he was able to plant his little two-year-old foot on the pavement, I grasped his hand and held him back, which, of course, sent him into a fit flailing by the end of his arm at the injustice of his father, not letting him be the big boy he desired to be. Now, I love my little man, but I want him to actually be a big boy someday. And that means that I have to put rules in place so that he survives being a toddler, and then a little dude, and then a bigger dude, until he's an adult. As his parents, I have as his parent, I have rules in place, not to limit the amount of fun that he can have, not because I don't respect him and his choices, but because I love him. And I know better than he does. He has a hard time understanding that, but, but it's true. And I'm not going to let him march his little two-year-old self across Clinton Ave or Arlington Ave, for that matter, without some guidance from Dad. It's dangerous, and he could get hurt. The rules are for his benefit, not to mock him, not to belittle him, not because they don't respect him. It's not an abuse of authority. It's an act of love. Church, the law is for our benefit, not to mock us, not to belittle us, not so that God can be the fun police. God created fun. He created laughter. He made endorphins, not so that they could sit idle and be wasted, but so that we could all enjoy them. But he doesn't mean that everything that, that doesn't mean that everything that gets our endorphins running is healthy for us, is beneficial for us. The law is good, but the law does not save. This morning we're supposed to be talking about the final means of grace given to us by God. When we say means of grace, we're talking about God's grace given to us in a, in a tangible form. The first two we covered were the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Today, we're looking at the Word of God, and the Word of God is broken into two parts, okay? Two parts. And no, I'm not talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm talking about the law and the gospel, both of which are littered throughout both testaments of Scripture. We spent the first part of the message this morning looking at the law, but the law does not save. It is not a means of grace. We cannot, by our own effort or will, follow the law perfectly. We cannot earn favor with God. We cannot be good enough to be saved. We do not get brownie points for following the instruction that God has given us. We cannot earn God's favor. So why do we look at it? Why do we focus on it? Why do we talk about the law? I love the way that Dr. Timothy Istabo put it in his book, We Believe, a commentary on our statement of faith, where he writes, While the law itself is not a means of grace, 
It is a servant of the means of grace. It is a servant of the means of grace. The law is a servant of the gospel. The law helps us understand our lost condition. We see how we have fallen again and again, how we have failed to keep the loving instruction given to us by our Heavenly Father and how that has separated us from Him. And if we didn't understand that, if we didn't have some grasp of that, the gospel wouldn't mean anything to us. We wouldn't understand why the gospel is good news. We wouldn't understand our need of it. Why would forgiveness of sin mean anything to us if we didn't understand that we're sinful? But God has always understood our need. And he has always known that on our own power, we could not make things right. We could not earn his favor. We could not achieve what he desires for us to achieve. And so, in his great love for us, he changed the game. He sent a hero. He sent us Jesus. And Jesus lived among us, and he taught us. He cried with us. He laughed with us. He loved us. He cast out demons, and he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind and made the lame walk. He was perfect, understood God's instruction to us perfectly, and applied that instruction perfectly, and we hated him for it. And so one night he was betrayed, and that betrayal led to a false trial and conviction. And then Jesus found himself walking up a long hill with a wooden cross upon his shoulders. But he did not just carry the timber of the cross. He carried the weight of the sins of the world. And when he reached the top of the hill called Golgotha, called Calvary, he was nailed to that cross. And as the nails went through his hands and his feet and he was lifted up, the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us. He became every time we've gotten so lost in sin that we couldn't even see it. Every time the odor of our sinfulness has affected and hurt and offended someone else. He took that sin because it became that sin. Every sin that, that we've ever done, every sin we ever will do, Jesus took it upon himself on the cross, the perfect one, taking the sins of the broken. And there he suffered for them. There on the cross he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there on the cross, with his last breath, he said, It is finished. And then he surrendered his spirit and died. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we trust in him, when we rest in him, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, we are saved. When we believe in Jesus, the benefits of all that Christ has done are ours. For through faith, the dirty rags of our sin are taken from us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When we believe, we are brought into the family of God and called sons and daughters. None of this through works. All of this through faith. This is the gospel. The law says do and the gospel says done. Look at what Christ has done for us. Look at what Christ has done for me and for you. Church, the gospel is fantastic news. What we see in our text this morning is the gospel at work. Look at verse 17, which tells us that anyone who believes in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. In Christ, our sins are no longer counted against us. In Christ, we are forgiven. And so in Christ, our old selves are gone. And in Christ, we have been given a new life, a life that has been reconciled to God. For our text this morning continues by stating that all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He does the work that we could not. 
Through faith, through belief, we are reconciled with God, brought back into relationship, the relationship with him that he intended for us, that we fell from in our sin. This is the good news. And this means of grace, God's grace given to us tangibly, the gospel is powerful. As Yistabo continues in his book, the word of the gospel brings sinners to believe in Jesus Christ. Have the forgiveness of sins. Become righteous in God's sight and have eternal life. The proclaimed word of the gospel saves, church. I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. But when we proclaim the word of God, the gospel becomes a means of grace for the sinner as it works in their heart and brings them to faith and to salvation. For as Paul tells us in our text this morning, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the privilege of telling our neighbor, our friend, our fellow parishioner in the pew, our mother, our father, our children, everyone, everyone, that God loves them and that Jesus died for their sins and that when they believe in him, they live in the benefits of the forgiveness that Jesus has already purchased with his blood and they are brought into the family of God, that the old has gone and that the new has come. And we may wonder why we need to hear that message. We may wonder why I speak of the cross every week from this pulpit. We already know the story. Why do we need to hear it again? Because, church, we need to be reminded. I, I need to be reminded. For though I am saved by faith in the blood of the Lamb, saved by Christ's death on the cross, Though the old is gone and the new is come, the words of Martin Luther remain true. That the old nature, the sinful self that resides in each of us, has been drowned in baptism, drowned by the receiving of faith in the Holy Spirit, drowned. But as Luther recognizes, that little punk is a good swimmer. And so until the day comes that I am made new at the end of times, I need to be reminded of God's grace for me. I need to be reminded of all that he has done for me. I need the tangible truth of God's means of grace given to me through the word of God, and so do you. And so we visit the cross again and again that we may be reassured of the promises that God has made to us that though we had a bad week, though things didn't go well, though some things happened that that bring us shame, that Jesus died for us, that God still loves us, and that we're forgiven. After my conversation with my dear friend by the river, he made some drastic changes in his life. To someone that didn't know him, you you may not have seen them, but to those of us that knew him well, we caught them right away. And it took a little bit of time, but as, as he changed the ways that he was living, as he developed some better, healthier habits, the odor lessened until it was like hanging out with a new person. There were still some times that the odor came back, but the change in, changes in his life brought on by that hard conversation had healed him to the point that he could smell it on himself and would immediately begin to make the changes necessary in his life. And now? Now he's married to a fantastic woman and they've adopted some kids. I don't think she has any idea about that phase of his life. He's a new person. The old is gone, and I'm so proud of him. The word of truth is a powerful thing, and the word of the gospel is the ultimate truth. But it's also harder to find for our sinful eyes. 
How many times have we done a Bible study and seen what God's desires for us are, but struggled to see what he has done? And our takeaway is, all right, so these are the things that I must do. These are the things that God wants of me. And we leave that time of devotion or that time of group Bible study with a list of what God wants of us. And when we realize the depth of just how difficult these instructions are going to be for us to follow, we may even spruce it up with a verse like, all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. Now for the record, that verse is about enduring suffering, not keeping the law. But sometimes we struggle with context, don't we? Now there's nothing wrong with knowing what God wants for us. It's important. It's important. In the same way that Noah shouldn't be crossing Clinton Ave, so we should know what God's desires are for us, the safety instructions that he has given us. But let us remember that the law does not save Let us remember that the law is a servant of the gospel, that it points out our need, shows us where we have failed, so that we may be receptive to what actually saves, the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we study the word, let us remember that there are two parts. One part that tells us what we must do, and the one that tells us what Christ has done. Both are important, church. Both are necessary, but only one of those saves. So as we leave our studies, as we leave our times of personal devotions, as we leave our church services, services, may we be encouraged and strengthened and convicted for what God has called us to do, but may the emphasis be on what saves us. The hope that lies in the last line of our text this morning, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's where our hope lies, church. That's where the good news lies in Jesus Christ through whom those that believe become the righteousness of God. This is the word of truth as a means of grace for the sinner. So go, tell your neighbor, and as you proclaim, may the words from your lips speak to your own heart as well. What a fantastic, gracious, loving, and merciful God we serve. Amen.